This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center, and joining me today is Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director of the Madison Center. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, all things considered. Really excited about today's conversation. I am as well. Today, we have a special guest, former Senator Mike Gravel. He served in the Senate representing Alaska from 1969 to 1981, and he ran for president both in 2008 and this year in 2020. Um, I think one of the most notable things about Senator Gravel is that he waged a successful one-man filibuster for five months in 1971 that forced the Nixon administration to cut a deal that ended the draft. He's also prominently known for his contributions to release the Pentagon Papers. After serving in the Senate, Senator Gravel founded the Democracy Foundation, Philadelphia II, and Direct Democracy, three nonprofit corporations dedicated to the establishment of a legislature of the people in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, Senator Gravel. Thank you for having me, very deeply so. Senator Gravel, we just finished reading your book, The Failure of Representative Government and the Solution, author of Citizen Power. And what I wanted to ask was how you would define democracy for us. What does the term democracy mean to you? Uh, it means that the people directly will be involved in their own governance. Uh, and the difference between the people directly and of course what we have which is a form of representative government, where the people indirectly, they, gave, they give their power away on election day uh, to representatives who then they hope the representatives will translate their interests and desires into solving policy issues and establishing laws. Uh, that, in my mind, uh, guarantees that there will be a continuation of uh, a monopoly in lawmaking by representatives. And I think that that distorts the, the needs of the people and the ability of the people to deal directly with, the, with lawmaking. When I was reading your book, one of the things um, that struck me um, was a debate that has really been, um, it, one of the things that struck me was was a debate that we've had really since before the Constitution. Um, writing from France, Thomas Jefferson sent a letter to James Madison saying, uh, he wrote, on similar ground it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. They may manage it then and what proceeds from it as they please during their usufruct. They are masters, too, of their own persons, and consequently may govern them as they please. But persons and property make the sum of the objects of government. The constitutions and the laws of their predecessors extinguished them in their natural course with, who, with those who gave them being. Um, he goes on and says, concludes, every constitution, then, every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. Now, James Madison responded to this, that a nation needed stability 
um, and that people needed to revere the Constitution in order to, to have some stability. Um, but he conceded a bit to um, Jefferson's point by including um, a, a process for amending the Constitution. I wonder if you can comment about the amendment process in the Constitution and how it has served each generation. The amending process is in Article 5, uh, and unfortunately, that's how the government amends the Constitution. That's not how the people would amend the Constitution. And the tragedy is uh, that Madison and the others chose not to provide procedures for the people to amend the Constitution or change government over time. When, in point of fact, they all made public statements indicated that the people had the right to do this. But to, to ascertain that right without giving procedures uh, is a slight hypocrisy. Uh, I, I know the difficulties that they faced at the time as politicians, but, but again, we have to recognize that the Constitution, in giving the right to change uh, to amend the Constitution, that was only given to representatives reasserting and enforcing the monopoly that representatives have in changing the Constitution and making laws. The people should have that same power if they are, as we consider them to be, the superior power. Uh, as uh, the professor from uh, Harvard articulated at our conference, there is no power superior to the people. That is articulated by Jefferson, Madison, and many others. However, uh, the exercise of that power cannot take place unless there are procedures to do it. And that would be an evolutionary process. Lacking procedures and the, and the people feeling very strongly about their powers can turn violent. And that's what I would predict in this century, unless we can accommodate the people's ability to make laws. And, and, and that's the essence of it from my point of view, because law is the core of civilization. Law is the core of human governance. And, and if you don't permit the people to participate directly in lawmaking, you then relegate them to a secondary position to their, to their creation, which is the government. Senator, your, your book speaks about undemocratic features of the American Constitution. Can you address what some of those are and what makes them undemocratic? Well, first off, there's the Electoral College. Uh, which is very undemocratic because we know that the majority of people can make a decision, but that that decision is upset as we had in the election with Trump. Uh, he got the Electoral College, but not the vote, uh, popular vote. And that happens frequently. But the, the next item is, of course, uh, the, the, the Fifth Amendment, uh, the, the article uh, of, uh, of the Constitution, uh, which is the ability to to change the constitution uh, that's very undemocratic because the people aren't involved in any possible changes uh, under that article uh, the next one is of course the uh, the united states senate 
you know, I represented more moose than, than people. Uh, and, and then, of course, the fourth one, well, the, the, the first one, which was repealed, which was three-fifths of a person, which was uh, uh, done away with by the Civil War. But the fourth, the fourth and fifth one is the fact that elections are conducted at the local and state level, not at the federal level. And the reason for all of these five, uh, I consider very undemocratic uh, actions, uh, powers in the Constitution, they were put in place to protect slavery. Uh, and slavery, of course, is the scourge of our society uh, and, and really underscores the fact that the framers of the Constitution did not keep faith with the Declaration of Independence. And that is a very serious situation that has really uh, damaged our system of governance to, the, to this very day. Senator Gravel, you, you identify, and you've already talked a little bit about this, but you identify an important paradox in the Constitution, that the power is, the power is derived from the people, but that the Constitution only gives power to people through representation. Can you discuss a little bit more about, can you discuss this paradox a little bit more and its implications for governance? Well, the, it, it's a paradox unless you go to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter was the institution of slavery, slavery and its protection in the Constitution. And so the reason why uh, the, the framers did not want to uh, provide lawmaking capability or ratification capability in the Constitution, keep in mind, the Constitution elements are ratified by the state constitutional conventions. So when the constitutional conventions of nine states ratify this Constitution, this Constitution then becomes the law of the land for the states, the nine states. And, and of course, this was repeated and followed on with others. But the reason why that was successful in its undertaking is in my mind was the existence of, of Shays' Rebellion, which started in uh, uh, 1877 and 1887. Uh, and, and that frightened the, the leadership of the nation who were convened at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia too. Uh, and frightened all the leadership so that after nine states had, had ratified, no, not nine states, the conventions of nine states ratified the Constitution, then what happened is that the opposition to the Constitution written in Philadelphia, the opposition just faded away. Why did they fade away? For the very simple reason that they recognized proven by Shays' Rebellion that the dismemberment of their government, a confederation was taking place, and that would jeopardize the property interest, their personal interest uh, in a stable government. You are proposing a more direct democracy uh, through a Citizens' Amendment and the Legislative Procedures Act. I'm wondering 
in your work on this, whether or not and in what ways these ideas might be attractive to either or both of the major political parties today? I personally do not think they would be attractive to either political party. The parties exist in order to garner power, and that's the name of the game. Only does secondary interest like policies uh, and, uh, and moral considerations take place. First and foremost, they are magnets for power. And what, what I'm talking about is a difference, and that's the reason why they would never acquiesce voluntarily to setting up the people to be able to make laws because it would dilute their power. When you have a constituency of the nation making laws directly, there's no need for, for uh, organizations and parties, which of course the, the founders incidentally disdained from the very beginning. And of course it was from the very beginning that, that the uh, parties took place in the first administration of George Washington. So, so in point of fact, uh, there's no need for partisan uh, power if the people are empowered to make laws. Now, when I would view that the people would be primarily dealing with policy issues and leaving the nitty-gritty day, day operations uh, to representative government, which, of course, would be very much improved because uh, they would not be able to deal in the abuses that they presently deal in and, of course, deny the needs of the general public when, when it's clearly uh, seen, the best example is, of course, single-payer health care. From the get-go, the people, by 70% in the polls, indicated that that's what they wanted. They never came close to it uh, to, for representative government to get them what the people really wanted. Does that answer your question, I hope? It does. I'd like to ask a follow-up to that. What would the relationship be between a citizen legislature and Congress? I think it would be a very harmonious relationship. First of all, because the, the, the legislature could not operate independently of the will of the people, as they do now, and because it's so distorted through the election of representatives rather than, rather than direct. So what would happen is the people would get used to, and there's not that many. If you'll notice in the list of my, the chapter that I have on what could be dealt with, there's not that many. That's the reason why I feel very comfortable in limiting the number of federal legislation, state and local, to 52 a year. Uh, and uh, because if, once you get beyond the policy issues, uh, you now get into the nitty-gritty of operating the government. And that is better done by uh, the, rep the elected representatives and the uh, bureaucrats that they put into power to implement the day-to-day -day operation. But, but there's a discipline on them now because the policy is set by, by the people in direct elections uh, voting. And so this is very clear. And so if the representative government does not adhere to the wishes expressed in legislative or, or constitutional amendments, then what could happen 
and this is what you have to appreciate, that when the people come into the operation of government directly as lawmakers, they become the senior partners. They, since it's attributed that the people created the judiciary, the people created the executive, the people created the legislature, then obviously the people could make any correction of those institutions that they wanted because they are the foundation of the power. This is what, what's important to appreciate. And, and that's the reason why the procedures that I have in the, legis the Legislative Procedures Act and the procedures I have in the Constitutional Amendment are extremely serious. If we were to enact a uh, empowering the people to make laws directly, without these procedures, without these in legitimate constraints of human action, uh, it would be anarchy. And that's, and that's of course, the, the argument I make when people say, well, the people will do this bad and do that. No, they won't. The people, given the proper tools, uh, will be able to do a very good job in their own self-governance. Without the tools, it then becomes anarchy and very dangerous. And now that, that's what's important to understand in, in direct democracy, is direct democracy is not anarchy. It's an organized process where the people can make laws as representatives do in, in the organized process of their various legislatures. So I have another just quick follow-up question to this. Um, in, in my own research, um, looking at cleanup of the nuclear weapons complex, one of the mechanisms that was in, instituted for supposed greater oversight were citizen advisory boards. But looking at those citizen advisory boards, in many cases, particularly with regards to nuclear weapon sites, where there's not a lot of transparency um, and the, the, the government can essentially use national security as a rationale for withholding information from citizens, um, you know, most of the, the citizen advisory boards can, can easily be co-opted, right? Um, because they, they can't get the information they need to make the best decisions. I, I can't help but thinking about that, uh, lessons from, from, that pro from citizen advisory boards in terms of a broader people's legislature and that how can you keep it truly independent and, and at the same time having all the information it needs to be an effective and legitimate decision-making body. Well, first off, let me agree with you. The advisory board does not work at all. Uh, and not only advisory boards, but the various uh, institutions of government that are designed to safeguard uh, problems within uh, the, the domain of that uh, governing activity, uh, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because the power of representative government does not reside entirely in the hands of the representatives when they're elected. It truly is in the hands of those who permit legislative individuals to get elected. That is, who puts up the money? And so we wind up in a situation where we are today where the elites control society and they do it via the shortcomings of representative government because we're a capitalist society and money rules. And of course, that will dissipate itself uh, when you have direct democracy 
because money will not rule. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. And what, what I've designed in the Legislative Procedures Act is a process of information that anybody voting on any subject that comes up can go to the website and, and be informed of all facets of the legislative procedures that brought the decision to a vote. We don't have that today. Uh, how many of you and know what the hell's going on in Congress today or what they're passing today, other than the broad, broad strokes that the media chooses to inform us about? That's about it. The procedures that I put in place, starting with the qualification, an issue is not taken up unless there's 40% of the people who want to deal with the issue. If there's not that, the issue is not taken up. This has a way of limiting the bad legislation, the crazy legislation that's thrown in all the time in the legislature. The, the existing legislatures, the, the information is, is controlled by the elites here. Mitch McConnell and his supporters in the Senate can destroy a whole year's activity uh, from, from taking place. And that, that won't occur in what I've designed. And this is what's important to understand. When, when I'm talking about direct democracy, I'm talking about a procedure wherein certain key elements of it are, are laced into the Constitution itself with an amendment. Then the other daily procedures that are put in place are in detail in how a legislative process is designed to act intelligently and properly. And of course, a good deal of that is copied from uh, from the uh, legislatures themselves, since I've served into two. I was Speaker of the House in Alaska, and I was 12 years in the Senate. Uh, and so, and I've been a theorist, a political theorist, or uh, an activist since I was 15 years old. So those three areas congregate, in my mind, to a design wherein the people are supreme. There's no power superior to the people. Now we have to give the people the proper procedures to exercise that responsible power uh, in a responsible way. We're having this conversation today during a global pandemic, COVID-19. I'm curious if you could speak to what the role of the citizen legislature would have to address a public health crisis emergency like the one we're facing today. Well, first off, the people would be visited with better information since the information will be garnered uh, by the legislature of the people and transmitted to the legislature to the people, not by a narcissistic fool who happens to be president, uh, who then dominates the, the communication system uh, of mainstream media to the detriment of informing the people properly as to what is going on and how it should be addressed by the science in question. And so you would see a situation where a legislature of the people would immediately, immediately glom on to what the scientific facts are, what, what's the uh, recommendation of, of action to be taken publicly, and then they would be implemented by the people, not by representatives who may be uh, influenced by the executive or influenced by economic interest 
uh, in society. Uh, and so, that, so in my mind, once you set the people up with the proper procedures, with the proper chain of information that they will be able to have at their disposal in making political decisions, once you set that up, it will be so far superior to anything we, has, we have ever seen in our history or in the history of human governance. So two young people, David Ox and Henry Williams from New York, were listening to their favorite podcast and were inspired by hearing about some of your ideas. And they started and ran your 2020 presidential campaign. I wonder if you can talk about how young people can contribute to building a more just and equitable democracy. Well, the reason why young people can do a, a better job, because they're not steeped in the uh, in the aura of, uh, of, of existing power. Uh, they're coming of age uh, with enough experience to ask questions of the system and demand that the system produce more than it has been or will be able to produce. So then they, they demand change. Now, the problem with demanding change without a procedure, of course, is what I say, is here we have a failure in representative government, but there is a solution, and I provide the solution. And, and if that solution, believe me, has to be accepted by the people, if the people do not understand that they are the solution to the problem, and which I think young people do because that's where they go into protest. They protest because they know they're the solution, but they can't get that solution affected into the day-to-day -day operation of the government because the government is controlled by special interests and in fact, a minority government. So the choice is very simple for us at this point in history, human history. And that is, we are ruled by a minority. What I'm suggesting, that we, we change that process and we, are, we should be ruled by the majority. And with proper law, the minority is protected by law. And so that, now, my hope of getting this enacted into law is, is, is dubious. The most encouraging thing I've had happen uh, is this interview that I'm having with the Madison Center. Because James Madison, in his leadership in constructing our government, was focal to the whole process. And so what I'm implementing and what I'm suggesting is that we use Article um, 7 of the Constitution, which clearly says when the conventions of nine states ratify the Constitution of Philadelphia, it becomes the Constitution of those nine states. What I'm suggesting, we take exactly that same approach, and rather than asking conventions, we had the technology to ask the American people, do you want to be empowered to become a lawmaker? And if they answer in the firm, affirmative, then they can empower themselves to be lawmakers in a superior power capacity than representative government. This is what needs to happen. And if it doesn't, it won't. Here, there's no way the Congress is ever going to do this because it dilutes their power and dilutes the power of the elites. So the only, the only hope we have is for institutions like the Madison Center 
to be able to say, look, we've examined what Senator Gravel is talking about. We've examined the elements of direct democracy, and we find them in need, in great need to be implemented by society so that we can have direct and normal human governance through the device of law. The people must become lawmakers. Otherwise, there is no hope. Senator Gravel, we, we are doing this work from, as you said, the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement, which is affiliated with James Madison University. We think a lot about the work of preparing young people and, and, and people of all ages to be active and informed participants in civic and political life. And we see that as a necessary component of the education process. With an expanded role of the people in governance, what do we need to do about our education system at the K through 12 level in higher education to prepare people to best fulfill what's gonna be asked of them under the reforms that you're suggesting? Well, first off, we have to begin to treat children in school with adult concepts. We don't have to give them the pablum forever. Uh, and so once you get into the fourth grade, fifth and sixth grades going forward to the case, uh, it's important to treat the founding of the country uh, with a certain degree of honesty and, and not with the pablum that we have. And that honesty, it means dealing directly with the, with the scourge of slavery, which is at our very foundation as a country and the scourge of uh, the, uh, the annihilation of indigenous people and the theft of their land. We just need to deal with that maturely and, uh, and not just hide from it like it didn't exist. You know, K kindergarten to K-12, you're still dealing in the pablum of, oh, we, we never, they never talk about our mistakes. They just talk about our, our great maturity. Well, we didn't have any great maturity. These were leaders who are human beings like we are today, and, and they're the ones that, uh, that need to be made mature in the eyes of the children of today. The best way to get forward on an educational system is to begin to educate. To begin to educate that what the people can do is become lawmakers, that they can deal directly with their own problems in a mature fashion. And the key word is deliberative. You just don't deal with issues, uh, yes or no. You deliberatively analyze the elements that you need to be informed about so that you can make a proper judgment. That's what needs to be brought into our educational system. And at the same time as you're doing that, you're educating people that they are the source of all human power. The people are sovereigns, not because it's written on any parchment. They're sovereigns because they're born into life and they're guided to adulthood by their parents or, or surrogates. Uh, and, and that is the, the maturity of the educational system we need to have, we need to have rather than the, the rah-rah kind of attitude towards American history, that uh, we are the greatest, we're the smartest. All of that crap needs to be put aside 
and deal maturely with human development. And human development is wrought with difficulty, is wrought with mistakes. And, and that is what has to be brought into our educational system, which it's not today. The educational system is no more than flag waving and singing the Star Spangled Banner at a football game. Uh, that, that, in my mind, is not civic education uh, in its fullest. Senator Mike Gravel, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We have one final question that we ask of all of our guests, and largely you've answered this throughout the episode already, but what would you do to strengthen democracy? What I would do is what I'm doing right now, is talking to people who are on the cutting edge of leadership in understanding history. When, when you look at the actions of Madison and his role, you know, he's revered. I don't revere him. I just consider him a very smart politician who had the good fortune to have slaves to do the work for him while he was able to do the serious thinking uh, with respect to human governance. And so all I can do is my, do my best efforts, hopefully, that, that people in key positions like the Madison Institute, for me, this is the heart of the matter because what I'm talking about is bringing about direct democracy based upon the leadership of James Madison. And that's not approached or, or appreciated to any great degree, but it can be made and appreciated through your leadership as I've exercised my leadership on this particular issue. And so I would hope that you would permeate the, 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 the information that we've put forth in this uh, interview and permeate that as much as possible to the public so that they could begin to grapple with this issue of human governance and the issue that the people must become lawmakers. That is, the people must have direct democracy if we are able to survive this century. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Caitlin Waltmeyer, a senior media arts and design major. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about us at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.